The following resource is by CBC Mokopani. For more resources like this, check out our website at www.christbaptistmokopani.com. We're in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Um, and this is our new series for a Sunday morning. Uh, if you missed out last week on the introduction to 1 John, um, it is online. You can either watch it, listen to it, or even read it. I mean, what a time to be alive, amen? Um, so please just take note of that. Um, I want you to just be aware of, of the context in which John writes. And if we have to spend time every week just to revisit that context, it's going to take just too much time um, out of the time that we have together. So go back to that message. And even if you did listen to it, but... Um, you don't really remember the whole context, go back, maybe to the notes, make your own notes, and try and keep it in the back of your mind every week as we meet and as we track through First John. Now let me read for us as we just dive into these, these truths and the importance um, they have for us, especially today. First John chapter 1. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Amen. That's the reading of God's Word. And just to recap... Um, Last week, in dealing with the context of 1 John, John writes this letter so that you and I as believers would have assurance of our salvation. Let's call it Christian assurance, alright? From here on out, when, when you hear Christian assurance, that's what I'm referring to. I'm referring to having an awareness, a true awareness, a peace of our standing in Christ. Of our standing before God. So what's of first importance is the source of our salvation. I'll say it again. What is of first importance is the source of our salvation. You see, John was dealing with Gnostics. Again, you'll have to go to last week to know who they are. I'll, I'll leave that dangling in front of you. But John is dealing with Gnostics who were false teachers that came into the church throughout Asia Minor, right? Um, throughout Ephesus. And so these people have come into the church preaching a false gospel. Now if they were correct and Jesus was just a man who received the Spirit Christ, then guess what? His sacrifice on the cross isn't sufficient. For the kids, means it's not enough. Why? Well, see, the Gnostics in part believed that yes, Jesus was a man, but at His baptism, He received the Spirit Christ and, and Christ possessed him until he went to the cross. And at the cross, this spirit, Christ, left the man Jesus. The Gnostics, in part, also believed, so they had two groups, right? The other group believed that Christ was just spirit. He seemed as if he was real, but he was a spirit. There was nothing physical about him. Again, if that's the case, if Christ is just spirit and never took on flesh, 
and he supposedly dies on a cross, would that be enough for the payment of our sin, for salvation? No. Let me explain. I want us to take a step back, all the way back, like really back, like back to Genesis, okay? Genesis chapter 3. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? I'm waiting for like the choir to just echo the resounding pain that we have to deal with today still. Sin happened. Sin happened in Genesis chapter 3. Now, according to this, because sin entered the world, what does Romans chapter 3 teach us? No one's righteous. Why? Sin entered the world. And now, man is sinful. And therefore, death spread to all. So the result of Genesis chapter 3 is, we are all sinners. None are righteous. We have all fallen short of God's glory. Okay, so, because that's the reality, can we stand before God and enter heaven? I'm waiting for the tomatoes and the bricks. Can't do that. No. Why not? Because God is holy. And because God is holy, can He allow sinful, defiled man to be in His presence? No. Not at all. Not at all. So, Romans chapter 3 teaches us something very important. That the wages or the payment for sin is death. Right, so we have to die to pay the price. The thing is, if we die and pay the price, how do we come back? How can we go back and stand before God? We can't. So they need, we need a solution. The problem is, we cannot afford to pay for our sin and live. So what's the solution? John tells us the solution. My dear friends, God is the solution. God Himself is the solution. You see, only God can fully satisfy the full price of sin. Man is incapable. Man cannot satisfy God's justice except by spending an eternity in hell. That's how we by ourselves can try to satisfy God's justice. Is to go to hell for an eternity. Is it fair? Oh, you're right, it's fair. We deserve it. Why? Because we have sinned. So again, we have a solution. And I'm thankful for this because, friends, no service, no sacrifice... No gift that you or I would, would ever offer would be able to appease the wrath of God. In other words, satisfy the wrath of God. Nothing we try, nothing we can do will ever satisfy God's justice. The only satisfaction that could be acceptable to God and that could reconcile man to him, had to be made by God. God had to make a way. Remember, this has always been plan A. This is the reason God the Son, Jesus Christ, came into the world. This is the reason why Jesus Christ took on flesh. He did it so that He could be the perfect sacrifice for sin. He did it so that we could be made right with God. Fancy word, atonement. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 tells us that Christ came to make atonement for the sins of the people. He came so that He would be punished. 
in our place. This is why Jesus said, and John, whom we read about, whose words we just read, also wrote a gospel account of Christ. And in this gospel, John records the words of Jesus when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to, me, to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. So the only way God's wrath against sinful man could be satisfied is if we are reconciled to Him through Christ. We are either made right with God in Christ or we pay the price in hell. That's where we stand, right? Are you, are you with me? Are you on the same page? You don't have to necessarily agree. This is what Scripture teaches. I just want to know, are you following? Because John was fully aware of this truth. And so John wanted to, to encourage the overwhelmed Christians in Ephesus to have the same assurance. And therefore in John chapter 1, First uh, John, sorry, First John 2 verse 2, he says that Christ himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only ours, but also for the whole world. Christ is the one who can satisfy the justice of God in our place. So coming to the verses we read earlier, I want you to have this in mind. That Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the only thing that can turn away God's judgment of sin. I'll say it again. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the only thing that can turn God's um, divine judgment of sin away. Other than that, it's like a train is heading towards you and you are stuck in the tracks. So, coming to these verses, if God or if Jesus weren't God and man, it would be impossible for anyone to be saved. Listen, no one would be able to be saved. You say, but what about the Old Testament? How were they saved? You know what Paul tells us? They were saved by faith. How are we saved? By faith. Say, but in who did they put their faith? In the promised Messiah. They didn't get to see the promised Messiah. But they knew Christ is coming. A Messiah is coming who will save them. And so they put their faith in that truth. And so Paul tells us, by faith Abraham was saved. Yeah? And we have witness account that Christ did indeed come. That Christ came to fulfill these promises the Old Testament saints were looking to, were longing for. So having this awareness, the first assurance of the word of life that John tells us or wants us to have is this. The word of life is permanent. Look at verse 1 again. He says, that which was from the beginning. Skip everything. Last bit of the verse. Concerning the word of life. That's how the sentence could read. Because everything after that which was from the beginning are clauses. They're all just pointing to the word of life. So the first thing John says, the word of life is permanent. Now I want to just clarify, for if you aren't sure, the word of life refers to the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the gospel of Christ. That's the word of life. And so now there's a big word for us to learn in church this morning, kids. Incarnation. Not incarceration. Incarnation, okay? 
Very important that we get it right. Incarnation means the act of being made flesh. Christ became man. He took on flesh. It comes from the Latin version of John 1.14, which in the English reads, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Who's the Word? Jesus Christ. Where was Jesus Christ? He was from the beginning. And now, He has become man. That's the first thing John says. The Gnostics were saying what? Christ isn't real. He's just a spirit. John says, no, 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 no. Christ is from the beginning. He's permanent. He has been. Now in his gospel, and you can turn your pages there maybe, John chapter 1 verse 1, again he says what? In the beginning was the Word. Same reference. In the beginning was the Word. Who's that? Christ. John 1.14. The Word, what? Became flesh. Now, in that context, in John's Gospel, not one John, but John's Gospel, in that context, the beginning means the time before the creation of the world. When John writes in his Gospel, um, in the beginning was the Word, He's referring to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, what? God. What about God? God the Father? No, the whole of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. In the beginning. That's the context in which he writes the Gospel. But in 1 John, when John says the beginning... He has a different meaning. The expression, that which was from the beginning, will now describe what they heard about the word of life. This means that when John is talking about the beginning, he's referring to the beginning of his life on earth. So there's a difference, right? John's gospel, he talks about the beginning. Well, before the beginning. When Christ was. But here in the letter to the churches, John tells us about the beginning of his life on earth. Does that make sense? Are you with me? He has to make that reference because the Gnostics are saying Christ was never man. John is saying, no, no, no. Let's start at the beginning. Let's start when he became man. And I want to tell you something about when he became man. What does John say? We heard, we saw, we looked at, we even touched. You can't do that with spirit. It's physical. I don't want to jump the gun. But it's tangible. Right? Nevertheless, the reality of the word, or that the word of life, has been and will never change, is our first assurance. As a Christian, what hope do we have if Christ were able to change tomorrow? We would never have the security of salvation. But what does Hebrews 13:8 tell us? He cannot change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Therefore, John begins in the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of the proclamation of the gospel. Not the beginning of time, but the beginning of when Christ became man. And so John tells us, I'm going to share the same message that he preached. I'm going to share it with you. Because it's the same message that was started by John the Baptist. It's the same message Christ himself preached. It's the message of repentance. The message that forgiveness is available. That there is reconciliation with God. Friends, that's the equation of salvation. If you wanted a formula, that's as close you're going to get. 
Nothing changes. And so John takes his first shot at the heretics and their lies. Because the, the heretics were bringing something new. They said, no, no, no. We have received this special knowledge about the Christ. It's just spirit. And you also use spirit. So whatever you do in the flesh, it doesn't matter because you're spirit. You'll be saved by the supernatural knowledge. You just have to believe. John says, nope. He is real. And I'll tell you from the beginning. There's nothing new. So, friends, let me interject here real quick. If someone comes to you and say, I have a new revelation. Run! Alright, don't be brave. Bring it. Let me hear what you have to say. Run! Don't have time for that which is new. Bring me the Ancient of Days. Bring me the message that has been, that will be. When someone comes to you with a revelation in the form of a Book of, of Mormon or the pull of great price, the doctrines are, and the covenants or watchtower writings, chuck it. Right? Don't hang on to it. It's not worth it. Chuck it. Bookshelves are expensive. You don't have space for these things. If someone comes to you with the writings of Ellen G. White or Mary Baker, uh, Mary Baker's Eddie's um, Science and Health and the Key to the Scriptures, chuck it. If you pick up a book in Kumbooks that says a new dimension of the Scriptures, chuck it. It's the same old message. It's the same truth. If the supposed, because if you didn't know this by the way, they are Jehovah's Witnesses and they are true Jehovah's Witnesses. Now the true Jehovah's Witnesses will come with a document called the Harps of God. Run! Like, no! Don't come into my house. Uh-uh. We don't want anything new because new revelation is what? Outside of that which God has revealed to us. Let's step on toes if I go any further. And so John's first assurance then is this. That which is from the beginning... The, the permanent, timeless, and eternal message of Christ. He was, He is, and He will be. Again, I want to say, there will never be another true faith. We have this faith that we hold to in Christ. Anything outside of that is heresy. Again, Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But then in verse 9, the writer uh, to the Hebrews says this, Do not, listen church, do not be led away by diverse and strange teaching, teachings. For it is for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. What is he saying? Don't even entertain the idea of listening what a false teacher has to say, especially if you don't know how to deal with them. If you are not equipped, listen friends, side note, rabbit trail, if you are not equipped, to, to counter the arguments of a Jehovah's Witness. He will leave you in your house doubting your very salvation. I can guarantee you that. Again, the analogy last week was what? If you apply for, for work at the bank and you get the job as a bank teller, do they give you every falsified note to study? Or do they give you the real McCoy? To feel it, to smell it, right? To know that once something 
that looks like this but doesn't feel or smell like this comes into my hand, it is not real. If you have the time and the brain capacity to go study the new revelations, to argue with folk, I know of believers that have that, that, have that ability. Um, James, James White, who, who does these teachings uh, um, through video, he's great, go listen to him. But if that's not where you are, don't do that. Study the truth. Let me do this. If you, by the time you have memorized 1 John, then I'll give you all these teachings to go study. I have them in hand. If you've memorized 1 John, I'll give you. Right? Go study. But that's the point I'm trying to make is we need to be what? So immersed in God's word and God's truth. Then we don't need to study what the heretics teach. Because we will identify them immediately. Alright, enough of that. Something happened when Paul was ministering to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 6 he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Listen, Paul ministered to the Galatians and then he finds out that they're no longer of the faith. Like they're entertaining other teachings. He says that they're turning to a different gospel. Then he adds, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, he's talking about the apostolic office, which in the early church was a very high office. He says, if we as apostles, or let me do one greater, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. If someone comes to you and says, I'm an angel from heaven, I have a new revelation for you. No boy, no way man. Right? Let him be accursed. Like, no. Be gone. Paul says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. There's no room for another gospel. It's the gospel of Christ and that is it. That is enough because that is the assurance of our salvation. That's why John starts with the beginning. And the beginning was the word of life and the message concerning the word of life. It's Christ and the gospel. So friends, the first assurance we need to have is this. The word of life is permanent. The word of life is unchangeable. And that should give us hope. That when you're sitting by yourself, questioning your actions and thinking, man, am I really saved? Look to Him who is permanent. He who has not changed. It brings us to the second assurance. The first two are a bit lengthy, but we'll get through them. Don't worry. The second point is this. The word of life is tangible. What does this mean? Let's read the verse together. John says the following. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, um, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. John uses these words because the Gnostics wanted to make religion seem mystical. By the way, even in many evangelical circles, if you ask supposed newborn Christians what, how they would define religion, 
They would probably define it in such a sense. It's scary. But that's where we are these days. They wanted to make it seem as if it's only something that's imaginable, right? It's, you can only see it in your mind's eye. John says, no, no, no. Let me appeal to your senses. The senses that can only affirm the physical. Yeah? Therefore, he challenges them and reveals to us that there's nothing mystical about Christ, about our belief in Him. John says that you can experience Him because we experienced Him. We heard Him. We saw Him. We looked upon Him. We even touched Him. That's a big deal. In fact, in his Gospel writing, John 1.14, again, John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you want to, we've seen the physical, right? That's what John says. But then he adds, His glory. We've seen more than just His physical. We have even seen His divine. He is tangible. He can be embraced. Right? So, how can we have the assurance of the word of life in a tangible way? John gives us four features. So you can write 2.1, 2.2, right? Firstly, John says this, what we have heard. Now, if you've been in our church for the last couple of months, perhaps a few years, every Sunday we were studying Mark's gospel. And what was the thing that we saw in Mark's gospel? Christ and His Word. Amen? Christ and His Word. In Mark's Gospel, week after week, we saw Jesus speak with His mouth. We saw Him speak in parables, in stories. We seen Him preach. But guess who was there? Guess who heard the parables and the stories and the sermons? I'll make it easy. We're reading his letter. Right? John was there. He was there with Jesus for the duration of his ministry. And he says Jesus Christ was tangible because we heard him. Number two. John says what we have seen with our eyes. John says it's real. It's physical sight. Again, John was there. And he saw Jesus cast out demons. He saw Jesus reach out and heal the lame. He was there when Jesus touched the eyes of the blind and they could see. He saw how Jesus healed the mute. He was there. More than this... John saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus feed the thousands. And for John, he doesn't say, in a vision I saw him. Because, by the way, if you want to make that argument, the only time John refers to the vision is in Revelation. But through the Gospel accounts, through his letters, he's referring to Christ physically. Thirdly, John says, we looked upon him, right? Or you could say, we beheld him. It's not the same as we see with our eyes. It means to examine. It means to look closely. It means to look deeply. And that's what the disciples saw when they looked at Christ. And they looked at the realities of Christ. You know what they beheld? His power. His power over sin. They beheld His power over darkness. They beheld how He overcame death. And so they saw Christ truly in His humanity. But they also saw Him truly 
in a divine sense. Because who was at the transfiguration? You got it right. It's John. He adds one more. He says, what we touched with our hands. Okay? Now, it's not just a thing of feeling. When John makes this reference, in a sense we could say that it's like when a blind man would feel or fondle. Imagine how a, bl a blind person reads the papers when they read Braille. It's intense. It's, it's there. It's physical. It's, it's intentional. John says that's how we touched him. It was intentional. Uh, it was with purpose. Uh, we could feel him. An example of this is Luke 24, 39. When Jesus told Thomas, he said, See my hands and my feet, that it, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. So, John appeals to our senses. He says, I have heard, I have seen, I beheld, I touched. And this is my testimony, this is my witness account. So furthermore, because John could testify to these realities, John was able to say in John 1.4, in Him is life. John is able to testify and record Christ's words saying, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is life. He is the word of life. And that's John's conclusion after being tangible with Christ. He looked upon Him. He heard Him. He touched Him. He even examined him. It brings us to point number three. And here's where we'll go a bit faster. Point number three is this. The word of life is proclaimed. See, if Christ isn't true, if Christ isn't who he says he is, then John wouldn't have said the following. John says in verse three, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. We're preaching. We were there. We were witnesses. And here's where we get practical, right? You want to have the assurance or Christian assurance? John tells us this is how it's done. It's when we bear witness of His life. When we testify of His truths. When we, when we proclaim eternal life. See, John shares his personal witness. He experienced it. He was there. But to the people whom John writes, guess what? None of them could have seen Christ. You want to know why? Jesus wasn't there. Jesus never ministered in their areas. So here comes John. And on a different occasion, Peter. And what do they do? They witness of Christ. They share the truth of Christ. What's furthermore, there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that any of these people in those churches ever met Christ. So they are taking, if, if they are taking John by his word, then they are taking one man's testimony to be true. And they could do that. Why? Because it's the apostolic testimony. It's the apostolic witness. Peter also gives us an eyewitness account. He says, I was an eyewitness to the visible glory of Christ at the transfiguration. These are eyewitnesses. And because they share these accounts, we can share their testimonies. When Christ manifested Himself to them, Matthew wrote about it, Mark wrote about it, Luke wrote about it, and John writes about it. 
So we have this witness. And to have this assurance of eternal life, we too can proclaim Him. And in proclaiming Him, we are assured just once again that we know these truths, that we've experienced these truths. This brings us to our fourth point. Not only can we be encouraged or will we be encouraged when we share the gospel with those around us and when we share the gospel to ourselves, but point number four says the word of life is embraced. Again, verse three, he says this, we proclaim him also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What's that significance? What does that have to do with any of us? The fourth assurance simply means that we can embrace the Word of Life. Again, that's, that's real. It's not mystical. It's not like Christ is far off. And you can testify to this, isn't it? When you've been overwhelmed, when you've been in a situation where you think it's humanly impossible for me to either get away out of this or even to continue. And then you just suddenly experience a sense of peace. Oh, but that, you know, that's spiritual. It's more tangible than what you realize. Why? Because His Spirit is working in and through us. Friends, there's nothing mystical about that. It is real. It is true. When the apostles ministered to the churches and there were miracles, there were healings, was it mystical? It was the work of the Spirit in and through these men. So again, the argument is shut down. And so John says, the fact or the reason that we proclaim the word of life is so that we can have this fellowship. But this word can be misinterpreted. Um, I think we can Christianize the word very easy. Fellowship and think, yeah, fellowship's those nice things that we do, right? It's the prize, it's, it's the tea, you know, some of us will run to the hall, grab the treats, and just chat about the things that we're entertained by and say, yeah, but that's Christian fellowship. Biblically speaking, Christian fellowship is something different. Fellowship, the word koinonia, means partnership. It's not sitting around the table and chatting and enjoying tea and, and whatever delicious treat that has been made. It's not just a relational connection. It's a partnership. It is sharing your life. It is being linked together in a common life. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9 uses it in this context. Paul says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Fellowship for what? Just to sit with Jesus in the mornings? No, a partnership with Christ. That when in dealing with your sin, it's not you, but His grace. And this happens when you're saved. You are now partnered with Christ. You are placed into a right relationship with Him. An eternal relationship with Him. We could even say it this way, you now possess the life of God in you. That's the partnership. That's how intimate it's supposed to be. Because that is true fellowship. That's how John is challenging these believers. He says our fellowship is with one another, just as our fellowship is with God and His Son. Now John doesn't record it, but he doesn't have to because the rest of Scripture does. Our fellowship is also with the Holy Spirit. 
What's the assurance that we're given in Romans 5? The Christian assurance in Romans 5 is this. God's love has been perfected, already been perfected in you. How does He show that? In that He has poured His Spirit into our hearts. That is Christian fellowship. That is sharing in the life of one another. That is taking our hands collectively for the sake of the word of life. This isn't calling someone and saying, hey, I need, can you help me with this? Give me help with that? No. This is not that kind of partnership. This partnership is to further testify of the word of life. Perhaps in a limited sense, this is what James meant when James said, confess your sins to one another. So there would be a partnership. So there would not be, because listen, there are no individualistic Christians. There's no such thing. It's not biblical. It's unbiblical. It's sin. Christ has established the church So we share in that life. And that gives us Christian assurance. That gives us hope that He's working in our hearts. Finally, as we close this morning, point number five. The word of life is enjoyed. The word of life is enjoyed. It might seem strange. Especially within the context of, let's say, organized religion. How can you say that? It's so demeaning. Christ shall be, should be held in high honor. Christ is held in high honor. Because He is the one who gives us true joy. He is the one who ultimately fulfills and satisfies the longing of our hearts. Therefore, John says, the word of life will provide joy. Friends, this is the anchor point to our assurance in Christ. It is a fulfillment that can never be lost. Again, James says to us what? When you encounter various trials, what should happen? What should you do? He says, consider it pure joy have you gone through a trial lately what's your first emotion what's your first response say but does joy mean I should be smiling be happy I should be laughing joy in the true sense is this that you are content with Christ in your life. That's the only two, true fulfillment of joy. If you are not satisfied with Christ in your heart, no matter what you are going through, you will never know true joy. And that's depressing. But when you have the sense of peace that Christ reigns in my heart, no matter what I go through, because that's hard, right? As going through a tough time, you're like, is Christ enough? We have those temptations. Friends, He is enough. He is more than enough. That's why Paul says this, Rejoice always. Again I will say, rejoice always. Because we have Christ. We have the word of life. And that's the beauty of Christian assurance. Christ is permanent. Meaning from before time and into eternity, He is permanent. Christ is tangible. Meaning He still serves as our high priest and He mediates on our behalf. You think that's where it stopped? Just touching Him and seeing Him? Christ's ministry for the believer continues even now. Told you there's nothing mystical about it. Christ is proclaimed. 
And when Christ is proclaimed, it leads to new life. It leads to hearts that are changed. It leads to His kingdom being expanded. Then it comes to this, our fellowship. Our fellowship with Him and His people. And friends, I want to challenge you as we leave now, this morning. That if you do not enjoy fellowship with Christ and His people now, then I, need, I want you to think about it. How will that change in eternity for you? How is it going to be different when you spend eternity with Christ's people and Christ? But when you know this truth, when you've experienced this truth, your joy will be fulfilled. Let's give thanks. Lord Jesus, until that day of, of, of glorification, of all things restored and, and put under your feet, un, until that day um, when you come to, to meet and greet us on the clouds, when, when, the, when the church is restored and, and rightfully made as your bride, let us have these assurances as, as your people that nothing about you will ever change. That nothing about you has changed. We want to thank you that in giving your life, we can embrace you. That we can even share you. And in sharing you, we, we, we just we see the beauty of, of the bride being built. I pray that we would just take hold of every occasion to be faithful witnesses of your truth. To take the testimony of John we've seen this morning and proclaim it to the nations. To proclaim it to one another. To proclaim it to ourselves on a daily basis. Our Lord and our Savior, we thank you for this word. This word of assurance. This word of truth. This word of hope. And we pray now that you would equip us as we go from this place. As we pursue uh, no longer lives of, of being individual but shared lives where we confess our sins to one another and know that you will bring us true healing. We pray this in your name. Amen.